Well, good morning to all of you. I'm Pastor Craig, one of the pastors here. I have been preaching through the book of Hebrews, and it really seems providential that we have come to this passage, this passage where we are encouraged to run with endurance under the loving discipline of God. I want us to uh, just think briefly about what has really changed in our daily life and habits as far as what are we distracted by now compared to before quarantine, before COVID. We have become, of course, maybe the most distracted of all societies in the history of the world. We have more distractions uh, than we can number, more ways to entertain ourselves. But now, has it become an opportunity to be less distracted? Do you find yourself less distracted now or not? Do you find yourself more lazy and and slothful in the Christian life now before or after COVID compared to before? Do you find that you are running with purpose or that you have lost that sense of urgency? I'm just very much struck by the fact that we've come to this passage now that we've, in our culture, sort of settled into this unknown. It feels like we are settling. We don't know how much longer we're going to be sheltering in place. And so it can feel very frustrated. We are just slogging through week after week. And so this is a wonderful, wonderful passage to meditate on and consider. Let's pray and do that. God, you are indeed the one who we should glory in, the one in whom we should boast. You alone are worthy of our worship and devotion. God, we ask that you would take away the distractions of our lives, that you would give us the wisdom and the insight and the boldness to know what it means to look to Jesus and run with endurance. We ask that you would speak by the power of your Holy Spirit. Speak your word, Lord, to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have come to what I am convinced is really the the thesis, the climax of the book of Hebrews. He's put this major therefore at the start of our passage because he's finally getting to say what he really has been building up and arguing for this whole time, which is look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. And really, I want to talk about two main things. Look to Jesus and then run. Those are going to be the two main categories uh, for the, the sermon today. But first, look to Jesus because you become what you look at. So first, Just that word, look, look, consider him, analyze him, meditate on him. It is so simple of an instruction, but one that is so often failed at, one that we forget about, isn't it, all the time? We have problems, we have issues in our lives. How many meetings have I had where things are going on and we've just totally forgotten about Jesus? We've forgotten about the whole point of this, the whole purpose, the one who is at the center of our faith and that we are told is meant to be at the center of the entire world, the center of our lives. How easy it is to forget that it really is meant to be about 
Jesus. I, I always remember this comment that uh, a non-Christian, right after our wedding ceremony, said to me privately, it's a beautiful ceremony, but there's a lot of Jesus. Did you have to have all that Jesus? And that comment is so striking to me because, yeah, of course, a wedding more than anything else, if it's not about Jesus, then what is it about? It's not pointing us to Christ's love of the church, his steadfast love. What is it about? And surely that is true for our entire lives. Look to Jesus. Does he not change everything? Does he not change everything? If we are looking at him and we don't see how he should bear on our entire lives, then we're not really looking at Jesus in the right way. If we're not talking to people about Jesus, if we think we're sharing the gospel but we're not talking about Jesus, it's all just hospice care. It's all just system, symptom management because Jesus is the one that's going to get to the root of our problem. What we look at is what we become. And so again, do we find ourselves distracted by other things? Do we find ourselves distracted by other things in the Christian life? Maybe you're not a Christian and you get distracted by all of the noise, whether it's in the media or in the church or wherever. You get distracted by a lot of supposed Christian things that have nothing to do with Jesus. First, let us deal with Jesus that we would not be turned away, distracted. Psalm 119 says, Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. So where do we turn our eyes? So we're told to look and then look at Jesus. Who is Jesus? Throughout the book of Hebrews, we have been given all sorts of descriptions of Jesus. He is first the radiance of God's glory. Meaning when God shines, he shines Jesus. He is the exact imprint of his nature. We're told he is greater than the angels who minister on God's behalf. We're told he's greater than Moses and Joshua who led God's people to the promised land. We are told he's greater than the priests who served in the temple in God's very presence He is indeed God's essence in human flesh. And then we get this great summary. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of the faith. That word founder is one that he used earlier in chapter 2. Pioneer, maybe is better. That's the one we heard read. Pioneer or trailblazer. There's a sense of he, has, he is the one who went before. In chapter 2, when the same word is mentioned, he's described as the one who is bringing many sons to glory. This is God the Father. Bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. He is the one who went first, the pioneer, the trailblazer. The forerunner is how he's described in chapter 6. The forerunner, if you remember, is not just someone who runs ahead of you, but it's this image of a little ship that is tied to the main ship still at sea. Jesus is the forerunner who has already gone. 
to the land. We are connected to him, even though we are still at sea, drifting back and forth. We are told to look to Jesus, the one who is our anchor, who has already reached the promised land, if you will. So he is this pioneer of our salvation. But it's also a kind of contrast, because we're told he's the founder, pioneer, trailblazer, and finisher, and completer, perfecter, the one who has brought it to completion. That same word that he says on the cross when he says, it is finished, is the word that's used here. And that should surprise us, because if you think of a pioneer or a trailblazer, they go, for, they go ahead, and then we follow. Others come behind and follow. But he does both. He is both founder, pioneer, and the perfecter. He is the one who has completed the work, has even perfected us already by faith, even as we await that by sight. So I just love, if you, if you think about the different names that are used of Jesus, if we are being saturated more and more in the word, we can adore Jesus with all of these biblical names. He is the Savior, the priest, the prophet, the king, the pioneer, and forerunner. He is the one who has perfected the faith. So we look to that Jesus, the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. And in this passage, we're also told specifically what kind of work he did. He what? Endured endured the cross, despising the shame. Despising the shame. That's a pretty significant phrase, and I don't want us ever to forget, no Christian should ever forget the shame of the cross. The absolute shamefulness of what a crucifixion was. Ancient Roman law forbade crucifixions for Roman citizens. It was so abhorrent they wouldn't let them go undergo that sort of punishment. And there's this quote from Cicero, who was an ancient Roman lawyer, right, famous speaker. He says, let the very mention of the cross be far removed, not only from a Roman citizen's body, but from his mind, his eyes, his ears. You couldn't even talk about it in respectable society in ancient Rome. The cross was such a shameful, shameful thing. And what did Jesus do with that? He despised that shame. He didn't let it be a deterrent, a definer of how he's going to treat it, which means what? It gives us a sense of the upside-down nature of the kingdom that what the world despises is very often what we should embrace what we should not be turned away from. He is despising the shame, and he is enduring such hostility from sinners. And I have to say, this is one that, for me, has been really helpful just in in times of wallowing in self-pity. And maybe during COVID, that's a time where you're, you're having moments like that. I know I've had my moments the last year and a half for me, but to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the one who endured such hostility. That one, remember, who is the radiance of God's glory, 
through whom and forth whom all things were made, the perfect righteous one who came down and met in us hostility. That's what he did. He faced that sort of race. He endured that sort of shame and cross out of his love. And so as we are challenged, I think, by these circumstances, don't focus on yourself. Don't focus on the things that will always change around us. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Consider him, it says. Analyze Jesus. He is the ascended king. He is seated now. And therefore, we ought to run. And so I think this look to Jesus and run with endurance have to go hand in hand. When you look to Jesus, when you understand who he is and what he has done, it should make you want to run. It should make your Christian life into a kind of run. And so that's what I want to think about for the rest of this sermon. First of all, why run? Why run? Well, clearly it gets at a kind of urgency, a kind of posture in our life. And it's pretty interesting that run is a metaphor that is used quite a bit in the New Testament for the Christian life. Paul uses it to describe himself and others. And a couple of examples, Galatians 2, Paul uses it to describe his, really his entire ministry and his entire life. He wants to know that he was not running or had not run in vain. He wants to know that all his work on behalf of the church in Galatia was not a running in vain. And then he does the same thing describing them. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? What is hindering you from running? Philippians 2, he says, he worries that he did run in vain if they don't hold fast. And so his concern for the church in Philippi is such that it's almost like a relay race type of run. That if you're not running well, then that means my running is not going very well. Philippians 3, of course, doesn't mention running, but it says, One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on. Straining, focused, pressing on. Clearly this image of an athlete running. The, uh, the athletes in action passage that we use in that ministry, 1 Corinthians 9, also uses this example. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul's using the athlete metaphor and then saying, our self-control and discipline should actually be better and more intense than the athletes. It's a metaphor that we should go beyond. Our self-control, the way he is disciplining himself and his body, is for the sake of this real race. There are these other races that are somewhat important, but then there's the real race. Is that the race 
that you are running? Is your life, your Christian life, does it depict a race? Or is it just kind of strolling through the meadow or maybe walking backwards? It's amazing to me, and believe me, I'm, I'm, preachers always preach to themselves for sure. It's amazing to me how the most ambitious people in the world, Yaleys, who I get to work with a lot, can be so lazy and slothful in their spiritual life. There can be such a disconnect. How can you run in everything else? But when it comes to looking to Jesus, we're just sort of strolling. We're just sort of walking. The urgency that we have is not there. Well, it has to do, I think, with the type of running that he wants us to engage in. Excuse me. <clears throat> and I want to look at really three types of, or three aspects of this run. And the first aspect is the way he starts with the description. He says, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And again, he's with this athlete metaphor. You get the sense of like, getting rid of the excess weight, getting rid of the sin that hinders him. Uh, do not let anything get in your way of running to Jesus. And when I first read that this week, I just had that image. Maybe you remember, remember when sports were a thing? <laughs> Back when sports happened, uh, basketball players would often warm up in baggy, long pants that had buttons all the way down the side. And then when it was time to go into the game, they'd strip them off. I was never cool enough to like have those pants, but they're really, I would imagine it's a really fun feeling to strip them off, and then you got your shorts, and you're ready to play. That's the sense I have, that he wants us to lay aside every weight. Why would you let anything hinder you and entangle you? Why would you let bag you? Like I can, I, when I was on this bike ride for the first time, this real bike ride, I was in baggy shorts and this the shirt with, you know, with the big hole because it was cool to cut off your sleeves like that. And it was so baggy, it was like a parachute behind me. Why would you let this in your race to Jesus? He wants us to run unencumbered. He wants, he wants us to run free. That's the picture that we have. This athlete who is running free, not being hindered. So we should ask, what is the extra Wait, what is our spiritual obesity, if you will? What is it that hinders us, takes our eyes off of Jesus? It seems like he's implying that it can be something that is inherently sinful. What is that sin that you still are in bondage to? And other things that are not necessarily are sinful, that still hinder you. It's been kind of amazing these last two weeks, I don't know why, but I haven't watched any TV. I haven't watched any shows. And I didn't, it wasn't some grand temptation that I overcame, so I'm not boasting. It just sort of, I'm not lying. It just sort of happened, and it's been kind of amazing. I have felt that God has just taken this sort of hindrance away. It's, it's helped devotionally. It's helped sleeping habits. It's helped, there are things that, are not necessarily sinful, and I'm not, I haven't made some promise to God about that. But there are things in all of our lives that are not necessarily sinful that really do hinder us, that still do hinder us. 
And we try to justify and rationalize them. So he's talking about both in that passage. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. And let us run unencumbered as we look to Jesus. The second aspect and the bigger chunk here is this aspect of discipline. We are running, but it is not aimless, as Paul said. We are running with endurance. We are running under discipline, under self-control. It is described as long and focused. Jesus endured the cross, and so we are called to endure. Now we follow behind the founder of the faith. It is described much more in terms of a marathon than a sprint. I think a lot of times our Christian life is little little sprints here and there, um, but they don't sustain. We are under training in our struggle against sin. And to, to consider very specifically and intentionally during this time, if a global pandemic is not getting to you that is God saying, wake up and repent. If this isn't as close as we're going to get to God riding in the clouds and say, hello, wake up, what are you running after? If this isn't God disciplining us, what could it be? What else would it be if God is really active in our life? That's part of why I think it's really amazing that we're We've come to this passage today. Surely, God is active. And the question from this passage is, how do we act? Meaning, what kind of identity do we see ourselves with in relation to God's discipline? That's what it hinges on here. Do you act and are you indeed a legitimate child? A child of the king or not? Everything hinges on that. The way we respond to our circumstances and the providences of God in our life, it all hinges on, are we legitimate children of the king or not? So he describes, if you are indeed a legitimate child of God, then his providence in your life is out of love. It is simply out of love because his whole posture to you is no longer one of an enemy, but as a beloved, adopted child. It has to be out of love. We are told we are co-heirs with Christ. Back in chapter 2, when he was saying he's the founder of our salvation, he then says, and he was not ashamed to call us brothers. He shares his inheritance with us. There is no more sin in a Christian's life that is left to be punished. It's already been punished in Jesus. We don't have to wonder, is this God? Is this some sort of weird karma? No, it is out of God's love that he is doing something for your good and for his glory. We can say, okay, God loves me. He delights in me, apparently, as a child. Therefore, what is he doing now? Westminster describes, in chapter 5 of the Confession of Faith, describes providence 
And it describes these hard seasons that, that every child of God goes through. It writes, The most wise, righteous, and gracious God does oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts to chastise them for their former sins or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts that they may be humbled and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself and to make them more watchful against all future occasions. Did you catch the purpose clauses as far as what is God trying to do when you are in a hard season? Well, we know it's out of love. He is trying to humble us, and that's a good thing. Because when we are humbled, as one, one song puts it, the way, falling is the way to ascend. When we are humbled, when we fall, that is the way up. The way down is the way up. He wants us to be humbled and raised to a more close and constant dependence upon himself. That is what we need. More than anything, that is what we need. And he, it is good, good news that he wants to do that in our life. The lips of Jesus say the same thing in Revelation 3. To those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. To those whom I love, Jesus says, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. But, excuse me, but if we are not a legitimate child, maybe you're listening and you're not quite sure who Jesus is or what your relationship with God is, the way that God is going to relate to you is still through judgment, is still under a curse of sin. Because we are still unreconciled in that enmity with God. Now some of us who are legitimate children still act that way, still receive sufferings that way. And it's such a tragedy because we think that God is like that coach who no longer cares that you're terrible. At first, he was yelling at you. At first, he was really trying to get you better, and then he just lost all hope and just gave you over. Okay, you're just going to be terrible, and I'm not going to care anymore. That's a picture of God's wrath, that he gives us over to the sinful desires that we are trapped in. We do not have to receive any circumstance like that. And everyone has this promise available to them that you can come to Jesus and see that the King of Kings is your loving Father and that there is no sin that should get in the way of that. And so... Obviously, hopefully, this is a time where there are opportunities in which we are um, not only disciplined, but the distractions of our life are being taken away, that we would draw close to God. And that's what I want to get to at the final. We run, we run free or unencumbered, we run under discipline, 
or we run with endurance. And then finally, we run with a clear goal. With a clear goal. And we see that here first in one, this one word, share. Share is a word that comes up in the book of Hebrews at a couple key times. And it's pretty amazing because we are told that we will share with Christ. We will share in God's holiness. And we will therefore see God. What does it mean to share in God's holiness or to be in training, being in preparation for this goal? Well, there's something that maybe you've run across. A lot of times, older saints throughout church history would talk about this life as a preparation of the next. This is just getting us ready for heaven. And honestly, that, I always kind of chafed at that. I, it didn't quite make sense just because isn't it true that if you convert on your deathbed, you're still just as ready for heaven as if you had been a Christian for 50 years? Yes, that is true. Justification, when you accept Christ, you are fully forgiven, fully considered righteous. Your sin has been washed away, cast to the depths of the sea. That is what happens by faith alone. But sanctification is still a good thing. We shouldn't want a deathbed conversion. We should want 50 years of becoming more and more ready to share in that heavenly kingdom. To get ready, if you will, for heaven. Because we are getting ready for communion with God. That's what it means. Let me read this passage in 2 Thessalonians 1 where I think it very clearly describes the, the sufferings that they're undergoing, but also the purpose, the goal for which this is all working towards. Because if we run without a goal, we're running aimlessly. 2 Thessalonians Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. To be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, or worthy of his calling, in Ephesians 4, he says that he wants us to act as if we are worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Do you realize the calling of a Christian? The calling of a Christian is to be one with God. To be united to Christ by faith. To be worthy of the kingdom of God. We shouldn't have this picture of, okay, we just get to walk through some pearly gates vision of the clouds or something like that. To be worthy of the kingdom of God is to be worthy of immediate communion with the presence of God. You want that. Whether you know it or not, you want it. Whether you name it as God, you want it because it's what 
everyone wants. Eternal communion with the one we were made for. Sanctification is getting us ready for that. It's getting us to change our tastes and our desires and habits that we would love that more and more because we would love God more. That is the race we are running. We are looking to Jesus because we will not only share in God's holiness, but then we are told that holiness is without which no one will see the Lord. We will get to see God. That's the race. We will get to see God. I can still see on my, I think it was fifth grade classroom, the journey, the destination is the journey. That's a horrible phrase. The destination is, the journey is not the destination. The destination is way better. It defines the journey. It makes the journey worth it. If you are hiking up East Rock and you're taking someone for the first time, you can't wait to get to the top because you're going to show them that view of New Haven and the harbor and Long Island Sound. The destination is better than the journey. Of course we're going to struggle. He's talking about this as a training ground, as struggling against sin. But we are going to arrive at a place where we will get to see the Lord. 1 Corinthians 13, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. God is purifying us that we would look to Jesus now with the eyes of faith, knowing that with the eyes of sight we will get to see him. We will get to behold the glory of God. And so it's a run because We're not satisfied right now. Why would you be stuck and walk around in this place where we don't yet see God fully? That, I think, is the urgency behind the run. The urgency behind, we live in a world that is filled with sin and racism and murder and all, why would you be stuck here? Why would you be satisfied with this? We're going to get to see God face to face. Look to Jesus. He's the one who's already gone there. He's the one that you are attached to by faith. And so he is not only the forerunner and trailblazer, he is your perfecter. He's the one that you are connected to by the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't look back. We're not like Lot's wife. Don't look back. Look forward to Jesus where we are running towards Make this COVID-19 time now count. We can run with endurance. We can run. And the way our passage ends, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one 
will see the Lord. Let's pray. God, give us the power to run this race. Give us the eyes of faith to see Jesus in his glory, to see Jesus as the author and perfecter of the faith. And God, change us more and more into the image of your Son that we would love holiness, that we would desire righteousness, that we would see your providential hand in our circumstances, and that we would receive them as the adopted, beloved children that we are. Father, we thank you. We thank you for being able to be in this race, the race that you made us for. Pray that you would give us faith and hope and love to run it to your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.